On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And when he did that, his pen unleashed a cultural ramification that today's bloggers could only dream of. Uh, He nailed his 95 theses to the door. A few people read it. Then they translated it from Latin into German, which was the language spoken in the region. And then, thanks to this relatively new, wondrous piece of technology called the Gutenberg Press, his 95 theses went 16th century viral. And as a result of that, uh, the Reformation happened. Now, most people don't realize this, but a month earlier, he actually posted 97 theses, and they didn't get any traction. And to get ready for the next five weeks, uh, as we're going to be exploring God's great reforming grace, I read, I reread the 95 theses, I read the 97 theses, and I'm going to tell you, I have an idea why the 90, why the 97 theses nobody really remembers, but the 95 got so much traction. The 97 theses that Luther wrote, or it was a month early, it was early September, I think. They were largely about salvation theology. The 95 theses were largely about using salvation theology to expose how the church was exploiting people financially. Uh Uh-huh. See where we're going with this? 16th century clickbait. He touched the hot button. So he posts the 97 Theses, which if you read them, they're largely about our need for justification by faith and grace in Christ alone. I mean, that's largely the content of the 97 Theses. People were like, you know, oh, we can't, we're illiterate, 97 points, Luther, you're killing us. We don't even know what justification means. We don't know what this means. Months later, October 1517, he posts the 95 Theses, and instead of, hey, church, you're, justifi- you're justified by, you know, grace and faith alone. The 95 Theses, which of course said that as well, also said, hey church, the church is, uh, you know, the church is uh, exploiting you for your money. Hey! We know exactly what that means. We are tracking with you. You've got our undivided attention. Now please, Luther, oh look, cons- consolidated into 95, easy to read points. Thank you, Luther. Run that justification doctrine by me one more time. We're paying attention. This is how this all unpacks. Four years later, after the Reformation, 1521, he has to appear before the assembly, and the church says, you have to recant your doctrine, or we're going to excommunicate you and kick you out. And Luther famously said, and I, and I quote, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And then a year later, so five years after he posted the 95 Theses, on March 10th, 1522, Luther looks back and he reflects on everything that exploded during the Reformation. And here's how he described it in a sermon that he was preaching on March 10th, 1522. He says this, and I quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank beer with my friends Philip and Nicholas, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. End quote. Now, 
Uh, we're headed into this five-week series as we're exploring the Reformation. I'm not going to preach on the Reformation because that would be weird. I'm going to preach Jesus, and we're going to look at the text, but we're going to explain, we're going to explore uh, what happened at the Reformation because I think if we don't look back at the sins that the church has committed in the past, we're going to commit them again, right? As the great, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, filmmaker Woody Allen once said, history has to repeat itself because nobody was paying attention the first time. So we want to uh, at least touch on uh, the Reformation so that we, I think we can learn and in humility uh, to God's grace, uh, you know, move forward, I think, in a beautiful way here at KW Redeemer in our own hearts. So the first, the, the Reformation really landed on five pillars. We're going to look at the first one today, which is sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. This is what we're going to be um, exploring. Now, when we say sola scriptura or scripture alone, we're not saying that there aren't other authorities in our life that are helpful or good, like parents and civil authorities and, uh, and uh, you know, municipal and federal law and the government. We're not saying that those authorities uh, aren't good or helpful. What we're saying is the word of God for us is the final authority. It transcends all other authority. And therefore, if any other authority in our life calls us to a life of, uh, of, of a worldview or practice that is contrary to God's authority, then sola scriptura, the word of God, is our final authority. And it, the word of God and the Lord alone, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the Lord of our conscience. And so we have to bend our knee humbly, because as those who are resting in grace, to humbly bend our knee to the reforming grace of God's word. So the Reformation, really, when you think about it, was a recovery of the gospel. It was a recovery of good news. The medieval church, it wasn't good news. You weren't going to church and, and, and feeling relieved, and you weren't leaving feeling relieved. In fact, in the medieval church, you left feeling worse than you came because they didn't have good news. The, the, the Reformation was this recovery of the gospel at a time in church history when faithful preaching of Christ was lost. And so, you know, God used the Reformers providentially to recover this good news of the rescuing, renewing, reforming power of God's grace. The word of God was the final authority. So today's text is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says some very, very profound and powerful and encouraging things about what God's word is and about what God's word does. So let's look at this text. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Now, as those who have come here this morning and we are resting in the grace of God because we've placed our faith in Christ and we are united to him, this morning we want to look at the gift of the word of God, of what is it for us and what is it doing in us and what does it do through us. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Scripture leads us into the grace of God and guides us into life with God by the power of God. 
When you look at verse 15, he uses this great phrase and he says that the scripture is able to make you wise for salvation. Able to make you wise. And it's an interesting wording because being wise is not just having knowledge. If you, if you think of a person in your life and you say they are wise, it's not that they have an intellectual capacity for knowledge. Their wisdom is that they can apply the knowledge. Wisdom is about application of knowledge. And so while it's true that coming to faith in Christ means that there's intellectual consent, right, and, and assent, and we are, our minds are engaged. What Paul is saying to Timothy is the gospel is God-breathed. There is power to believe that makes our intellectual assent possible. The word of God is not just simply a, an instruction manual like for your scientific calculator. Oh, okay, we're going to just read this and we're going to go away and we're going to do stuff. The word of God itself is this God-breathed power that enabled, our, that enabled us to believe, enabled us to come into to the saving grace of Christ. It says it's able to make you wise for salvation. So the word for able is dunamena, which means power in the Greek. So he's saying it, there's a power there in the word of God. And when he says to make you wise, it's the Greek word sophazai. And that means to cleverly and carefully imagine something. So what Paul is trying to convey to Timothy is not, hey, here's the, you know, here's the instructions, relay these to the church, do an information download from your brain to their brain, and then everybody goes, and through this information download that's occurred, they're going to live these different lives. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not the word of God at all. It does engage the intellect, but it's beyond the intellect. It's not just the head. It's the head and the heart. So he says there's a power there. The word of God is a, dunama, is a, is a dunamena, power, and it's got this sophazai impact. It's carefully and cleverly crafted for your heart to imagine new things. This is what he's saying to Timothy. This is the picture that he's given. When you, when you think about it, it, it's the word of God that brings us into the grace of Christ because it opens our eyes to see our need for Christ's grace. If you say to somebody, let's say you have somebody in your life, and they are, uh, they're going down a path that isn't good. Maybe they're a friend, a colleague, your kids. And this thing isn't going to end well. And you're trying to get through to them. At some point, you'll say to yourself or to them, you'll say, you need to wise up. Right? That's the language. Well, you need to wise up. And when we say, you need to wise up, what we're really saying is, you need your eyes opened here. Because I can't get through to you. And you're going to continue on this de destructive path, and it's not going to end well. You need to wise up. So Paul, describing the Word of God, says, There is a dunamain, a power that is carefully and cleverly constructed for your, not only your head, but your heart to imagine new things so that you wise up to salvation. So that your eyes are open and your hearts are open, and all of us have had that experience. Those of us who've placed our faith in Christ. Those of us who come here each week and we revel at His grace. That we're amazed by it. That it never gets old. It's not good news that becomes old news. We just keep going deeper and deeper into the good news of what Christ has done for us. And so this gives us great confidence in sharing the gospel. Because when we share the gospel and we give hope and uh, when we give a defense for the hope that's within us, we're not just conveying words. It's not just our words. When we talk about the love of God through Jesus, when we talk about the forgiveness of Christ, when we talk about his grace for us that covers all of our sin, when we talk about the fact that we have hope that this life isn't all that there is, and we're not really on a trajectory that it ends in death, darkness in a grave, the end, you came from nowhere, you're going nowhere, philosophically you're living in between the nothings, try not to think about it. 
too deeply or you'll be depressed, like Jean-Paul Sartre, right? When we share the hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel, it's not our words. It's God's word. And in it, there is the power to cleverly and carefully cause not just the head but the heart to reimagine their need for Savior, need for grace, the power of the gospel. So the scripture leads us into the grace of God in that way. Now let's move on and look at the second thing. How the scripture guides us into life with God by the power of God. Verse 16, Paul uses this word. He says, the scripture is breathed out. He says, it's God-breathed. What does it mean? He says, the way that it teaches and reproves and corrects and trains us in righteousness. What does all that mean? If the word of God is able to do all those things, how did the church in the 1517 get so far off the rails? If the word of God is able to to train us in righteousness, how, how is it that in 1517... The teaching was so corrupt. And how is it that today, if we look around, the teaching continually is corrupt? How does it happen? How did it happen? Let's take a minute and kind of look at this. Because there is a common denominator between the, the, the false teaching that Paul was dealing with and the false teaching that the Reformers were dealing with and the false teaching that even we can deal with today. Because when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he said, Listen, the word of God, the law of God is good. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. The law of God is good if it's used lawfully. This is what he says. So what's the common denominator here? What, how did it get off the rails? And how do we make sure that we stay on the rails? Well, if you ask the apostles, what's your, what's your final authority? They would say there's one source for final authority. But if you asked the priests in the medieval church, what's your final authority? They would say there's two sources. For final authority. The apostles would say, sola scriptura, scripture alone. But the church during the time of the Reformation would say there's two sources, the scripture and the church tradition. Now you can see how, you, how it, it took a while, but they got off the rails because they said the final authority isn't just the scripture. The final authority is the scripture and the life that the apostles are leading. And because now I'm a preacher of God's word and I'm carrying on the lineage of the apostles, then the final authority isn't just what the scriptures are saying. It's what the scriptures are saying and how, I, and what, how I'm living and what I'm thinking. It didn't get there overnight, but that's how it got there. It wasn't sola scriptura, the scripture alone. It was the scripture and the church tradition. And so it, 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 it became problematic, and the Catholic Church to this day still holds to that. 1545 Council of Trent, after the Reformation, they went sat down, they said, nope, it's the Scripture and the Church tradition. They're, they have equal authority. And so I know that a lot of, a lot of Christians today will say, hey, the, the, you know, this, this Pope is doing great things, and he is. He's got some great messages, and he does. He's calling us to mission and to care for the poor, and that's beautiful. Right? All of these things are very good and very commendable, absolutely. But call me when they go back and say, we're going to amend this Council of Trent in Scripture alone, which, which to this day, you need to know that they haven't recanted on that. They still believe Scripture and tradition together. Now, what's the problem with that? We, now, before we puff our chests out and go, ah, ha, ha, those silly, those silly Catholics, you know, the, the, the Reformational Church is guilty of doing the exact same thing. There are Reformational churches, then and today, who hold their traditions and hold the Reformed Confessions like it's the Scripture, and it's not. That's dead wrong. The Reformed Confessions, you know, they're, they're only faithful to the degree that they 
restate the scripture, but they're not the Bible. They're not the scripture. They're helpful guides, right? But there are reformational churches that will hold them like they are the Bible, and they're not. But if you swing into the other ditch this morning, you've got the largest movement uh, in North America, which is the, the prosperity movement, standing up in pulpits and saying to people, if you don't give 10% of your income to the church, God will curse you. If you give 10% of your income to the church, God will take care of you. That's dead wrong. It's not in the Bible. That, that's not New Testament theology. That erases Galatians chapter 3 that says that Christ became a curse for, for us. And, and it, it undoes it. It's dead wrong. But yet, how does, it, how does it get there? And before we say, aha, those crazy reformational churches, aha, those crazy prosperity churches, you and I, right here in Redeemer, we can, instead of sitting under God's word, like the apostles did, we can stand over God's word, like the popes did, and you and I can decide, you know, this part of the Bible I really like. This part of the Bible I'm not sure I agree with. This part of the Bible I will bend my knee to. But this text over here that requires me to do this, I won't. And we can do the precisely the same thing. I'm guilty of it, you're guilty of it, we've done it. But Paul says that the scripture is God-breathed. You know, Al- Alistair McGrath is an Irish historian, and he writes about the state of the church in, during the Reformation, and, uh, and he talks about how they got to this point of talking, pre, uh, teaching indulgences, right, which we've heard of, which is what got everybody's attention back in the Reformation, that, hey, if you give money to the church, God will forgive your sin. I mean, that's nowhere in the Bible, but the, but the church, you know, embraced this. And hey, if you give money to the church, God will forgive the sin of your dead relatives. That's nowhere in the Bible either. But the church came to believe it because the church was largely illiterate and they weren't, they weren't reading and they didn't know. But what's the difference between the church that was illiterate in Paul's day, which they were, and the church that was illiterate in the Reformed day? The apostles sat under the word of God and said, this is our final authority. And by the time the Reformation crept around, the popes were standing over the word of God. The apostles were saying, we want to extract the goodness of Jesus out of the scripture. We want to pull God's agenda out of the scripture. By the time of the Reformation, the popes were saying, we're going to infuse our agenda into the scripture. Again, you didn't get there overnight, but eventually they're teaching things that aren't anywhere in, 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 uh, in the Bible. And so uh, Alice, Alistair McGrath writes this, um, this article, and in it he quotes, they, had this, they actually had this, um, this saying in the medieval church, and they had a little slogan. It was, like a, it was like a 16th century tagline. And they said, when a coin in the coffer rings... A soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that cute? Heresy's so cute, isn't it? Right? It's just so cute. Cute little rhyme. Hey guys, tinkle tinkle. If you put money in the, in the coffer and it rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And the whole church is like, man, we don't know, so I guess we're going to kind of do this. And then, you know, Luther nails it to the door. But the scripture is God breathed. And so we sit under it and we allow it to form and reform us. In 1522, when Luther uh, translated the Bible into German so everybody could read it, his reason for doing that was, was this, and I quote. He says, No priest, no pope, no council needed to stand between the plowboy and the word of God. Why? Not because a plowboy could walk out of the field and rightly interpret the word of God, but the plowboy reading the word of God would have the word of God read the plowboy. 
That's the dunamis power of the word. That's the dunamis power of the word that is creatively and carefully imagined to sophizai your soul so that you see your need for Jesus and his grace. It's not that when we, we, we come to the word of God, we're doing something. It's that when we come to the word of God, the word of God is doing something. That's what Paul's trying to convey. The reason why we read the Word of God, the reason why we we sit around our table and teach it to our children, we gather on Sundays and we have the Word of God read, and I try and go do my best to go through these texts and expound is because the Word of God is doing something. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's head and heart is what it's doing. It's a gift of grace. It's, It's radical and beautiful. That's what Paul is very carefully and intentionally, that's why Paul chose those words. Because when Paul says the word of God will correct you and reproof you and train you, he's choosing his words carefully. You and I think about being corrected and being reproved in a negative way. Because we don't want to be corrected, you don't want to be reproved. That's how we think of it. The reason is because we have an image of the Bible like it's going to correct us or reprove us like an old angry nun slapping our knuckles with a ruler. So when we read this text, we think, oh, the Bible is good for reproving you and correcting you and training you. What we imagine is, I'm going to give you a new image here. This is not the image that Paul has in view. It's not what these words mean, right? The word God breathed, Paul made the word up. It only appears here in the entire New Testament. It's nowhere else. If you read the New Testament in Greek, this is the only place you're going to find God breathed because he took the theos of God and the paneo of the breathing and he put it together because he was trying to create a new picture. When he says it teaches, it, the word for teaching means applied teaching. In other words, the teaching is doing something to you. It's active. When he uses the word reproof, it's the Greek word elegmon, which means there's a persuasive inner conviction. And when he uses the word correct, the Bible will correct you, the word of God will correct you. He, words, he uses the Greek word epinarthosis, which means to reform or to straighten out. So as we're reading God's word... It's not about walking away and having an intellectual exercise where we say, oh, no, I perfectly have exegeted this text and I understand it. It's that as we're reading it, it's reading us, it's reading our hearts. The Spirit is doing something. It's God-breathed. Of course, we're going to learn and understand things, but deeper than that, though, underneath it, Paul is getting, there's a gift of grace here. You're not doing something, though you are. The Spirit is doing something. God is doing something. So when we hear it, we think it's bad. So I'm going to give you a new image. It's not, the word of God is not like an angry old nun slapping your knuckles because you got something wrong. Here's the picture of correcting and reproofing. There's a little kid in their driveway taking slap shots, and they want to be a hockey player, and they're taking slap shot after slap shot, but they're missing the net every time, and they're putting divots in the garage door, and the tears are streaming down their face. They're trying so hard, and they just keep trying and trying, and they just keep hitting the garage door, hitting the garage door, when suddenly they hear a still, small voice behind them. And the still small voice behind them says, Hey, I notice that you're trying really hard. And the little kid turns around, and it's Sidney Crosby. And Sidney Crosby says, with a smile on his face, Sidney Crosby looks at this little child in the drive when he says, I see you're trying so hard, but everything you're doing is wrong. This is wrong. I know it seems so right. To you. I mean, I know it feels so right, but it's wrong. Can I help you? Let me help you. And Sidney Crosby goes over, and that little kid, what would that little kid's reaction be to turn around and see Sidney Crosby standing in their driveway? Not, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed, oh no, get away from me, get away from here, no, I'm fine, I'll figure it out myself. That kid is like Hannon Crosby the stick. 
And Crosby comes over, and what does Crosby do? He moves their elbow and their hip and their shoulder. and their th- He's adjusting, adjust- he's correcting everything. And he's, and, he, and, he's, and he's animating their motion, and he's behind them, and he's helping them with that stuff. He's, anim- he's reimagining the whole thing. Then Sidney Crosby spends the whole day with the child. What, does, what is the child's response to this? Is the child's response to go home, uh, to go into their room and throw their hockey stick down and cry and say, I never want to do this again. This is the worst. I'm so embarrassed. Sidney Crosby embarrassed me. He said everything I was doing was wrong. No, 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 no. That kid is taking selfies with Sidney Crosby. That kid is going to school and telling everybody. He's like, hey, yesterday I spent the day with Sidney Crosby. Dude, everything I was doing was wrong. But then Sidney Crosby came and he was like, what? And now... You understand? Do you get the picture? This is the derascalia elegmon epinathosis of the Word of God in your life. This is the teaching, correcting, reproving of the Word of God in your life. Yes, it's intellectual, but it's, in, it's, a, it's this animating movement of let me, let me reform you. This is what it means to be reformed as the church. Being reformed is not a personality. Okay, being reformed is this beautiful dynamic process of what God is uh, doing in our hearts and our lives through the word of God. And so there's no shame for you and I when the word of God corrects us. When we say, yeah, but I think this and I feel this and it seems so right. And then we're reading the scriptures and the scriptures go, ah, and they say something 180 degrees different than what we seem to be thinking or feeling. Allow it to reform us. There's no shame in this. This is, the, this is the glory of God reforming our hearts. I'm going to give you another picture. So that's the first picture. But here's the second. Because you, some of you say, oh, Paul, that's so cute. But, you know, all of our lives aren't cute. Some of our lives are very difficult. Some of the things we're going through is very hard. Some of the reform that God might ask us to leave a way of thinking and embrace another one that is, is, is painful. Here's the second picture of the gracious reform of God's word. The power of the God-breathed word of God. I'm downstairs at the house, and I hear screaming upstairs. This is about two months ago. Screaming. Dad! And I hear the screaming, and I come running because it was actually Rebecca. Now, my daughter, 19 years old, you know, mature university student, I'm like, what happened? And I fly up those stairs, and I swing the door open in her uh, bedroom, and she's on the floor, and her knee is out of joint. Somehow, she was turning, and she just turned in a funny way, and it was a freak accident, and the way that her knee hit the corner of the bed, her knee went out. And she was on the ground, and her kneecap was beside where her kneecap needed to be. And she is screaming, Dad, please. Dad, please. Now, the word for being, being corrected in the Greek, which I just gave you, is epinarthosis, which means to reform and to straighten out. And when I came down to Rebecca, I said, now, I had a football injury, so I knew what to do. Can you believe the providential coincidence of this? So I went down and I said, Rebecca, this is what I need to do. I need to straighten this out. And do you know what she didn't say to me? She didn't say, no, leave it. It'll work out. I'll be fine. Give it time. It's going to be okay. Not going to be okay. Not going to work out. Never going to walk again if left in that condition. So I said to her, I said, Rebecca, I need to straighten this out. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do And every time, you need to do, you need to do, you need to do. I'm not asking her permission, right? I'm not like, how do you feel about it? You know? 
I'm thinking we should put your leg in this position, but how does that work for you? How do you feel about this correction? Because if you're not okay with it, I mean, we can just leave it. You understand? So the father comes in and doesn't ask any questions. Why? Because I love my daughter to pieces and I want my daughter to walk. So I straighten her leg out. And it took a little while to heal. And, the whole, and when I straightened it out, it wasn't fun. When I was straightening it, she wasn't going, yay! There was, <laughs> there was reform happening. But yet, after I straightened it out, and she laid on the ground, and I laid on the ground, and she was trying not to pass out, and I was trying not to pass out. She was feeling nauseous, I was feeling nauseous. You know, this is where the analogy's over. I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not God, and you know, the, the analogy's officially done. You know, I'm not God in the story here. I'm just trying to give you a picture of reform. So I'm on the, I'm on the ground, she's on the ground, we're, we're just like, oh my goodness, that was just un, unreal. It was unbelievable. So when, God, when Paul is using this, giving us this picture of the gift that God's word, word is in our life, it's that we are united to Christ by faith and grace alone. Christ has done it all. There is nothing left for you and I to do. We're not waking up in a state of flux. Well, now I'm in God's good graces, now I'm out. Now, that, now God's pleased with me, now he isn't. Now he's happy with me, now he's not. If you are waking up every morning in a state of flux based on your performance before God, then you should be waking up every day depressed. Either that or you haven't read God's law. But if you've read God's law and you own a mirror, then you know that every morning you wake up and he is pleased with you on the basis of Christ alone. Because Christ perfectly provided everything that the Father required. And now, because you are in this place of rest and grace, he gives us his word to breathe into us. Paul uses the word God breathed because he's invoking, he's, he's provoking us to think about another time in the scripture when God breathed. What happened the first time God breathed? Life. And now we have the word of God where he's continually breathing into our heart's life. We are made and remade. He is the God of creation and recreation. We're in this beautiful place of reform because of what Christ has done for us in this. In verse, um, verse 16, it talks about being trained in righteousness. So what we're learning here, the words that Paul is using is that God's word is not just academic instruction for our heads. It is dynamic animation in our hearts. And so he uses this word, this phrase, being trained in righteousness. How are you trained in righteousness? And Paul isn't schizophrenic because Paul taught many times, Christ is your righteousness. So if Christ is your righteousness and you are declared righteous on the basis of what he did on the cross, and that's done because you're justified, Legally, because Christ paid for your sin. If you're righteous, how are you now trained in righteousness? What we learn here as we study the words that Paul uses is that it's the training in righteousness is not that we are, we are becoming increasingly righteous by doing things. It's that we are righteous in Christ and now we are living out the implications of that thing. The Christian life and the Christian faith is not an exercise a lifelong exercise of doing different things. It is a lifelong exercise of wanting different things because our heart is being reformed to want something else, which results in the doing of something else. When Paul says the word of God is God-breathed to reprove you and correct you and reform you and train you in righteousness, he's not saying, here's a new menu. He's saying, the glory of Christ has given you new taste buds. 
Here's a new menu. Do you see the difference? If theologically speaking, the Holy Spirit doesn't give us new taste buds, well, we don't actually want anything new, and then you're given a new menu, it isn't going to do any good, because you're just not going to want, you're, you're going you're to look at the menu of God's Word and be like, nothing on here is appealing to me. And it's just going to be an exercise in behavior management that's going to be very frustrating. But that's not the gospel. He doesn't say, here's a new menu, get at it. He says, by the power and grace, the justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, you're saved, you're righteous, it's done, that's your irreversible status. I know that your substance remains sinful, but I'm not just giving you a new menu. By the power and the grace of God, you give a new taste buds. So that over the years and decades of your life, increasingly, you're going to desire what's on that menu. This is the reforming power of the grace of God. This is the, this is the, theo, uh, the, the theos uh, pianos, the, the, the God-breathed uh, factor that Paul is getting at here in God's word. And so I'm going to close with this. It's that Christ provided the perfection that God required. He kept God's law perfectly. Christ, the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so because Christ lived an active life of active obedience, and he lived the life that we can't, and he lived the life that we won't, and on the cross, Christ demonstrated passive obedience by taking the penalty, and he paid the price for all of our sin, which is why God was able to justify sinners and be justified. Because at the cross, we see this perfect justice and we see this perfect mercy intersecting, that gospel church is doing something in you. The, the result of believing that, the dunamis power of God is reforming you. And so we come to God's word and we read God's word to our children and we, try, we gather on Sundays to hear God's word preached to us because in it God is doing something glorious and beautiful. The scripture says he who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1, is able to complete it. And so the word of God is not a manual that instructs you how to get all the things in life that you're interested in. The word of God is a gift that renews your heart because that's what God is interested in. And so God has decisively spoken to you and I in Christ, his son. Jesus has shown us everything that we need in him and everything that we need to know by the life that he lived. And there is nothing more than Jesus. There is nothing more that God has to say. So God continually breathes into our hearts what he has already said. Jesus interprets God perfectly. He is God. He said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, I'm sorry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14. He said, I and the Father are one, John 10. Colossians 2.9 says, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Everything God has ever wanted to say is said in Jesus. Everything that God has ever wanted to convey is conveyed in Jesus. And you and I now, at rest in the grace of Christ, at rest in the fact that our sins are forgiven, now allow the word of God to guide us in our new uh, adopted state into the family of God. The reason why we say sola scriptura, the scripture is enough, is because Christ is enough. Scripture is enough because Christ is enough and we are an imperfect people bound to a perfect word about a perfect Savior. Let's pray.